Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Salim. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. So where are you calling in from today? So I'm in Newark, Delaware, in my office at the University of Delaware. Okay, so is it, I'm guessing there's no snow, right? The snow is <laughs> No, thankfully, uh, we've got uh, four seasons, but uh, June is very much summer. And so the leaves are out and flowers are in bloom. So lovely day. Okay, very good. So there's a lot we can talk about given your very, very interesting background. And I'm very happy you're going to be on the show. But as a start, maybe talk the readers through your, your life and background so they get a sense of the person we're going to be interviewing today. Sure. So I do have a somewhat unconventional background. You know, uh, on my passport, if you look at my place of birth, it is New Bedford, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. believe it or not. But when I open my mouth, you can say yeah. I, I do not have a Boston accent. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, So uh, people often wonder. And I often at the immigration counters in the U.S., people are like, well, what's yes. going on here? So what happened is when I was nine years old, my mother took me back to Pakistan, which is the uh, country of parental lineage for me. And uh, yeah. I lived there with her for about eight, nine years. And uh, that, that was for cultural immersion. She really wanted me to know the language and so on. And then I came back to the U.S. for my higher studies, all my college and you know, yeah. master's, PhD were in the U.S. And um, so I, I have, I see myself as quite um, binational and perhaps even tri-national because then yeah. I lived in Australia for five years and I also have an Australian passport. So um, that's me. I mean, I really see myself as a global citizen and beyond the cliche, you know, yeah. as someone who's really lived that life and traveled all over more than 150 countries uh, and uh, just feel very blessed uh, to have experienced this planet in so many ways. Yeah. There's a difference between reading about a country and experiencing a country. And when you live in a country, you, you get to interpret their cultures. It changes you as a person. You, you get a fresh perspective each time you go to a new country. So there's many things we can talk about. But given the fact that we have a shared history in the resources industry, let's start there, right? So the resources industry gets a bad rap globally. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, people are trying to legislate them out of existence. That's basically the theme of mining, right? Until this inflationary pressure came along with the conflict with Russia and Ukraine, gas producers were enemy number one in the United States, and they still are to some degree. So as a starting point there, do you feel that we're doing a better job of taking care of the earth while we're extracting what we want from the earth? In your career, have we gotten better at it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, you know, I think that overall, uh, the resources industry has improved in the last two decades in terms of its environmental and social performance, but they have not been messaging that well enough for the public to change its yes. perception of the industry. And that's actually one of the goals of my book is to connect the public 
with foundational knowledge about yeah. the elements of the earth that we are constrained by what the periodic table has given us yes. in terms of metals and minerals and that we need to have a systems perspective on how we can harness those materials to make civilization work which is why we have defined our development as a civilization through metallic ages you know the bronze age the iron yeah. age and so on uh, and now one would say we are perhaps in the aluminum age yeah. uh, and and so um, you know that has been an important goal for me uh, and i think the resources industry needs to make that case more persuasively and uh, that has unfortunately still not happened and it's still one of the most unpopular industries if you do surveys the mining industry is more unpopular than the tobacco industry yes which is quite startling yeah no that's true it's, you have a very interesting perspective on this and i want to unpack it a little bit for our readers because mm -hmm. we worked in the same industry for a long time, we've actually worked at some of the same companies as advisors, like, like Anglo-American. And I remember having a discussion with the CEO of a Chinese copper company, one of the largest in the world. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about um, Afghanistan, for example. And one of the cases I was making to him is that because he was thinking about whether it would look good from them from a PR perspective to be going into Afghanistan so soon. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the arguments I made to him is that if you look at Afghanistan, it's effectively a failed state. And, you know, JP Morgan is not going to open a branch in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Starbucks is probably not going to open a branch. Ford is not going to build a factory there. The only people who could actually do something good for Afghanistan are resource companies. Mm -hmm. They would need to go in, build a refinery, extract the metal, start paying a salary, build the roads, build the hospitals, build the schools, so that you can build some kind of a middle class, which then other companies would follow through to, to build their businesses off. Now, given the role mining companies play in so many failed states, why do you think the world overlooks that? I think because uh, mining is very disconnected from the end use products, mm -hmm. which people are using in their daily lives. And they just don't make the same connection in terms yes. of where those elements are coming from, which are making their computers work or um, making their cars run and so on. So that has been a big challenge for the industry because it's not a, a very vertically integrated industry, yeah. right? So um, that makes it more difficult. Now, alum I mentioned uh, aluminum or yes. aluminum as it's called in the yeah. US. That is one of the exceptions in terms of a metal which has had more vertical integration. And you will see the difference because a lot of times, you know, we have people like Alcoa, which was a major yeah. one of the earliest mining companies. They also made foil. They made a huge array of consumer products around um, aluminum. And that completely changed also the perception of aluminum as a metal during its heyday. Um, but you don't have that for copper, you don't have that for uh, iron ore and so on. Yes, and for gold, indeed. Uh, so gold has a slightly unusual characteristic yeah. because it has some cultural attributes which have allowed it to still have, uh, you know, more traction uh, with the public. Uh, but um, uh, but certainly with the other metals, we haven't seen that. So that's one of the reasons. But then the other reason is also that. 
the the industry has been very uh, secretive, really. I mean, if you think That's about true. some of the mining companies, you know, uh, in South Africa, certainly De Beers is, a, of course, now part of Anglo-American, but it was at one time a separate company and one of the world's earliest and largest diamond mining companies. Uh, you, If you read the history of De Beers, they actually stated that, that we we want to be secretive. We, mm-hmm. we want to be, you know, the, the, one of the authoritative biographies of the founders of De Beers, it's called The Last Empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that book, there are some quotations which are quite remarkable. You know, there are like buildings in London with no marks and yes. they don't want people to even know about them, that they exist, you know, so th- that, and that's where the diamonds are often sorted and so on. So th- there's been this allure of, of secrecy, which also made, it easier for people to have conspiracy theories and so on about the mining industry. Yes. So it's um it's an industry that never relied on the end consumer. Therefore, it never built the capability to manage its image for the end consumer. Yeah. And you know, but DBS has obviously changed significantly since those secretive days, and they now want to be known as a distinctive diamond brand, right? Yeah, yep. So De Beers has gone through some real uh, changes in that regard because uh, they did go into retail then eventually and they opened stores and so on. But then there was again a pushback on that because there yes. was this sense that uh, they were being an easy target. And uh, so uh, it's been a constant struggle, especially for some of the luxury goods. Uh, sector and the minerals which go into luxury goods so gold diamonds colored gemstones because within the environmental community there's this sense that these are uh, not needed in my yes. society yes. and so one of the things i've always tried to do in my work is to make the connection between what is perceived as greed and what is need and often yeah. people think that they're two separate things one of my earlier books it's called treasures of the earth yeah. And in that, I made the case that need and greed are actually connected. And even though we have that famous quotation from Gandhi that, you know, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed, yes. I would respectfully counter Gandhi and actually say need and greed are connected because the, the greed or perhaps the luxury uh, demand for something like diamonds in a, in a developed country is what meets the needs of a country like Botswana, which has really risen from rags to riches yes. because of diamonds. If it wasn't for diamonds, there is no doubt that Botswana would still very much be uh, far more impoverished than it yes. is currently. So I think that need-breed connection needs to be made also more cogently by the industry. I like what you're saying. It's a very smart way of thinking about it because oftentimes especially with Western consumers, we don't understand the impact across the value chain of what we are doing. You know, I've, I've worked with people when I was serving diamond companies who would want to outlaw the diamond industry. Yeah. But they don't understand what would happen to a country like Botswana if you did that. And who's going to step in to create an alternative industry? So it's, exactly. about, it's about, yes, we, clearly conflict diamonds, funding of illegal activities and illicit activities, traceability of goods, very important things. But it's not about doing one thing that's going to put someone else's life at risk. 
Exactly. Yep. And finding that middle path between uh, having a much more responsible extractive enterprise and choosing your locations for where you mine much more carefully. And on the other hand, completely opposing uh, extraction because there's this history of uh, very negative colonial enterprises and so on. You know, that's the other problem is we have this persistence of memory of, you know, there's no doubt there's been a really dark history of a lot yes. of these companies. But uh, if we just languish in the past, then we will not be able to move forward. I mean, that has been true of so many other industries, been true of so many other political leaders, but we do need to be able to have a more uh, prospective view of, of change. So... Yeah, I mean, when I was um, leaving consulting many years ago, I was working with this oil and gas company, and they were trying to convince the German government that if you do what you're planning to do with combustion engines, oil and phasing it out and going all electric and renewable, you're going to lose a sector that brings in the bulk of foreign exchange earnings for Germany, which is the automotive sector. Yes. And... Everything that you want to do makes sense, but you got to do it in a sustainable way so we don't lose that competitive advantage. And I think this example you gave of Botswana ties into this as well. All these changes we're seeing in the world, you've got to understand the bigger impact and be able to mitigate it. And not enough people think that far down. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that's the other goal of Earthly Order, my new book, is to make people understand that uh, if you look at the universe in terms of a system and you look at the fundamental constraints of thermodynamics, uh, you have, there's what we say, no free lunch in the universe. You yeah. know, you will, whenever you are making choices of one material versus the other, there is some kind of an energy material trade-off. Uh, and so whenever we, we are thinking of a new kind of a battery or a new kind of a fuel, yes. there will always be trade-offs. And we cannot have a utopian view that we're going to get just the low-hanging fruit and we're going to be able to solve the problems without a trade-off. And yeah. that's really hard for our friends in the environmental community to understand. So that's why you get environmental conflicts, because you have a utopian vision of of what the future should be on the one hand and a very pragmatic and very instrumental perspective on the other. And finding the middle ground between those two is really hard. There's an interesting perspective because one thing I've noticed, if you look at through the ages, right? Every generation thinks that they are fighting for the one or two problems that will make life perfect. And once they fix it, there's going to be no other problems and just go on with their life. Because if you look at the 70s, right, enormous unrest in the United States, fighting for civil rights and all kinds of things. But we fixed a lot of things, but new problems arise. Yeah. Because when you fix one problem, another problem is created. And it's almost as if people have a utopian view of the world where they believe if they fix the problem, everything gets fixed, as opposed to being comfortable knowing that it's almost like you're de-bottlenecking a plant. You fix one problem, just a new problem moves somewhere down the plant. And yeah. one of the things I always get executives to think about is you're not fixing a problem to go on to some holiday, you're fixing a problem to get to the next problem. That's the mindset you need to have. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, you also need to recognize that you have to prioritize problem solving. Yes. And when you have limited resources, if you do not prioritize, oftentimes you can really end up in a muddle. 
Uh, and uh, we do have now some tools where you can multitask better, you can have more of a, a complex uh, yes. problem solving approach. But even there, you will need, you know, if you were using uh, even AI algorithms, they have to figure out some mechanisms for prioritization. And, uh, and hierarchies of decision-making. And uh, the sooner we recognize that, the better. Now, there, there is one aspect of this where I think the environmentalists have it right, which is that a lot of the decision-making in business and industry has neglected the environmental variables within that decision-making. And so uh, increasingly, people are recognizing that the environment is not just an externality, as the economists call it, where it was somehow external to the economic system. But yes. ultimately, the economic system is dependent on the environmental system. So I think that's where there is some uh, opportunity to learn from the environmental movement as well, to make sure we get an outcome that is most sustainable in the long run. So coming back to your new book, Earthly Order, when I was reading this, I felt, and correct me if I'm wrong, as if it's um, it's almost as if it's a summation of your life where you are trying to take all the experiences you've had and come up with some grand theory for how you think we can sustainably move forward in the world. Is that a good way to think about it? Uh, well, yes, thank you. I mean, I've certainly written it in the context of uh, my own personal life journey, and yeah. it has a very long introduction, partly because I wanted the readers to understand where this whole uh, narrative has its anchor. And uh, it does, to a large degree, uh, follow that path of my own career journey, because the first part is titled Natural Order. Yes. And my first academic training was in chemistry. So, uh -huh. you know, a lot of that part of the book has hard science in it, though I've tried to make it accessible, and yes. I've tried to give a lot of stories and so on. But I do believe that that foundational knowledge about science is important. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's part of why, you know, even in, in uh, most universities, you do have some kind of a natural science requirement worldwide, yes. because that provides you that knowledge. But then my, I took a, a different journey for the rest of my career. You know, I, I did a master's, which was very interdisciplinary in, in environmental law and policy, environmental studies. And then I did a PhD in environmental planning, which was very much an applied social science yes. uh, degree. So I moved more and more towards social and political aspects of uh, learning. And uh, the book tries to harmonize all of that learning around this notion of order and how uh, earthly order, which is bringing together both natural order and social and political order can find uh, some sense of uh, coherence. Uh, but I'm also very cautious on saying that order itself can be contested, that you, you can try to strive for order, but in many cases, order should not be uh, necessarily a preferred outcome, because sometimes you learn from uh, chaotic systems, you know, you, yes. you get incremental change through that kind of chaotic process. And so there's this constant struggle between order and chaos that has defined how humanity has uh, been able to develop, and uh, and we should be willing to recognize that. What you say is true. It seems as if, whether it's companies or civilizations or countries, we want to impose an order on things, mm -hmm. but order is not a natural state, so it takes up a lot of energy, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you've got to decide whether the order you're imposing 
is worth the energy trade-off. But beyond that, oftentimes we can only impose order in certain pockets. In, in a vast universe of chaos, we will stake out this spot and say, we want to bring order here and we're going to sort of be this island within this chaos. I mean, you see this happening all the time. It applies to colonialism, all kinds of things. But how much control do people really have? Yeah, yeah you know, the, the, so the amount of control that comes to an individual, it's we always say this, this is the nurture-nature dichotomy, mm -hmm. right? That how much of what uh, we do as individuals is determined by our genes versus how much is it determined by our, uh, the way in which we're influenced by society or by our environment. Uh, but you can take that to the, uh, the level of uh, organizations and, and so on as well. Uh, and I would say uh, we do have considerable control uh, in terms of functional management decisions, um, but we need to be always aware of the parameters under which we have that control. Uh, and those parameters are often divided, they are defined and they're by natural systems and how much of that uh, is basically going to um, be understood by the people who are exercising that authority. So there's also this really interesting dimension between authority and control. Like yes. someone may have a lot of authority and have power as a result of that authority, and especially in businesses which are traditionally very hierarchical, where you have a CEO that has considerable power in the board. Um, but but their control is going to be still limited by con constraints that are extant to um, that authority. And so they have to constantly be willing to negotiate uh, with their stakeholders. Uh, what is it that they can control and what is it that they may be perceived to have control over, but actually do not. <laughs> so, you know, that's where also this notion of order uh, comes through. And um, we have also had this big debate in planning circles around how much should planning play a role in decision making, right? Because yeah. uh, if you plan, if you over plan, sometimes you can end up with a situation where you cannot learn from your mistakes as well. And there was a bit, there was a very famous paper in the 19. Um, 50s and 60s, and there was subsequent research called The Science of Muddling Through. It was written by a guy named Charles Lindblom. And he argued that uh, we should be willing to have incremental uh, change rather than plan everything out yes. because we learn much better from incremental mistakes. But what, what happens is that process can be also very inefficient. So you, if you just muddle through uh, you can end up in a situation where you do not have the luxury of, uh, of time to be able to prevent some kind of uh, change that has uh, no reversibility. So with climate change, for example, one can argue if you just went the route of incrementalism, if you passed a certain tipping point, you would not be able to change it. So that's why planning is so important. And so that's going to be the real trade-off constantly in terms of all decision-making. How much should we muddle through? How much should we plan? So earlier you said that um, the main decision you have to make, or one of the critical decisions is about prioritizing right it's about deciding within the constraints of limited resources where you're going to deploy these resources and then we started talking about control so if you look at example like the former soviet union or apartheid south africa mm -hmm. initially 
the system of control they imposed, one could argue, was necessary to protect the region, whether it's the former Soviet Union, right? Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, the cost of keeping that control became so, so expensive that it basically bankrupted the countries. Yep. So I think the difficult thing for the audience is always, usually we, we set up some form of control, whether it's in our life or business or in a country, in this case, in this example, that works until it doesn't work. And how do you know at which point you've got to change the system of control or you've got to change something? I mean, using the example mm -hmm. of the former Soviet Union, at which point would it have made sense for them to relinquish control? In an orderly way. Yes. Yep. You know, so in the case of the former Soviet Union, one of the indicators that was uh, really staring them at the face was that they were um, now beginning to languish in innovation and yes. they were not able to actually develop technologies as efficiently uh, as they had in their earlier days. You know, yeah. for example, with the space race. Initially, the Soviet Union was ahead of the US because they invested in a lot of innovation and so on, and they did it, the, the planning was very good. Uh, but then what ended up happening was that they began to just uh, tolerate inefficiencies in the system and they began to subsidize inefficiencies. Yeah. And it led to the point where, for example, when it came to the space shuttle, uh, the Soviet space shuttle program collapsed, basically. You know, they, they had these... Uh, chassis of uh, shuttles built, yeah. which never actually took off, whereas the US was able to move ahead. So, um, you know, that, that when you recognize that your uh, control is actually undermining those kinds of efficiencies and innovations, that's a time to stop and think through because that's where you start to then also lose human capital. You begin to uh, get people disenchanted with the planning enterprise itself. That's a great example. I didn't know the story of the space program, but I remember reading a book. I can't remember who wrote the book. And it's, it's a story of how Joseph Stalin's Red Army was able to mobilize after the initial attack by Hitler. And one of the most striking things in that book was how efficient the Russian uh, military was at producing tanks that worked versus the Germans. And it's something that struck me because we always have this impression the Germans were more efficient during that period. So circling back, because there's a great example here, is that clearly the order imposed by the Politburo and so on in the former Soviet Union allowed them to marshal resources for the space program. But at a certain point, that order and control caused the system to atrophy. Yes, yep, exactly. And there was, you need to have good feedback loops in a complex system. You yeah. have this notion of feedback loops. So you get some kind of error correction, course correction when you get that feedback. And if you undermine those systems whereby you can actually get that feedback, that can be a recipe for disaster because you don't even know where you are going astray. Yeah. And so that has that was another huge problem with that kind of system where you basically stifled the ability for that kind of feedback mechanism to correct you. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because when I was um, still a partner in consulting, I remember we commissioned a study to find out why a disaster in the corporate world happened, right? For example, why mm -hmm. was this car put into production when everyone knew this part didn't work? 
Why was the mm -hmm. ship allowed to sail when they knew it was defective? And one of the things I've found, which is built exactly on what you say, is someone actually knew this wasn't going to work. It's yeah. just that the culture and incentive model in that company prevented that person's viewpoint from getting to the top. Yeah. And it's like what you Absolutely. say, yeah. you need to have feedback systems, but what if the culture doesn't allow it? What if the incentive system doesn't allow it? then people start pushing back and saying, don't give us this bad news. Exactly. Yep. And this is something that came out of research that was done on the Challenger disaster. There was mm -hmm. a, a very famous book by Diane Vaughan, who's a sociologist uh, called The Challenger Launch Decision. And it looked at how even in NASA, which was meant to be a much more deliberate administrative structure, they fell into the same kind of situation where um, the, the feedback loops were not very good. And when you had so many contractors, in the case of the, of the space shuttle, what ended up happening was the reason that you had the disaster was there were these O-rings, these little rings yeah. that were uh, put in uh, and uh, to as a seal in, in a certain part of the technology, and they were temperature sensitive. So it was a very unusually cold day uh, when they had that launch, and these uh, rings uh, did not function in the way they were supposed to because of that temperature. But if, when they went back to look at the records, there was a huge amount of warning that had been given by various people at contractors that NASA was using, yes. but the communication between NASA and the contractors was not very good. And so it ended up happening that despite the fact that there was, there was even one memo which said, there is the danger of losing the entire launch facility because of a catastrophic explosion. But none of that was read uh, in the way it should have been. And uh, so, you know, that kind of thing happens. Uh, and sociologists of disaster have looked into these kinds of complex systems of how you can improve their performance, uh, learning from those lessons. It was a great example because I also remember once dealing with a resources company that had a dam that collapsed, a slimes mm -hmm. dam. Yep. And it was a very big deal. It made headlines and it was a disaster for this company. They lost their, their credit rating, the share price tanked. They, were, they went through so many audits and so on. But when we did the work to find out why no one knew the thing is everyone knew about it everyone yeah. knew the dam was in danger of collapsing there was tons of research done but what had happened is that someone in the executive suite decided this was not a priority mm -hmm. it's just like the challenger example the people know the question is will they do something about it yep exactly and then also recognizing what um what has been called also there's a term used by Charles Perrault called normal accidents that mm -hmm. you know there in certain systems if you are uh, not conscious of your whole risk appetite framework you start to get this notion of well these are normal accidents that they just follow a certain kind of uh, trajectory and uh, then you know this leads to the conversations around risk and human societies and how we um, actually make decisions on risk. Uh, our decisions on risk, especially when it comes to energy decisions, is often not very science-based, you know. So, for example, with nuclear energy, yeah. we know that the behavior of uh, 
even democratic societies is not very science-based at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, if we were to, the number one thing we could have done to reduce our uh, climate change uh, trajectory currently that we're on is to have continued a lot of the nuclear power plants, which are still in operation for a longer period of time. Uh, not even if we not building new power plants, but just continuing the ones. Yes. Because otherwise we, what has happened in places like Germany yeah. is they panicked after Fukushima and they phased out a lot of what they were planning to do with nuclear power. And then they had to switch to fossil fuels. So their emissions ended up going up because they didn't have the infrastructure for renewables, they didn't have the battery storage, and they made a very knee-jerk decision based on panic from the population. Even though if you look at Fukushima, not one person died of radiation exposure. People died of the tsunami, of course, yes. you had you know, more than 12,000 people die of the tsunami. But the communication to the public was that somehow this disaster you know, was a nuclear disaster which it was not in the context of mortality or, or even morbidity, because 10 years later, the International Atomic Energy Agency has done a study of cancer clusters and they have not found any measurable cancer clusters even. So, uh, so the decisions were made not based on science, but on a misperception of risk or what yes. we call sometimes the social amplification of risk. That makes sense because whenever you talk to people, even if you read the press today, any of the major newspapers, there's always this um, fallback phrase where people say the data says, but the data doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. It's your interpretation of the data. Exactly. And what we tend to forget is data tells us nothing. Data doesn't have a conscious, it can't speak. Right? It's how we interpret things. And the interpretation we give things is often determined by the conflicts of interest we have. So Absolutely. if you have a reporter writing an extremely liberal, environmentally conscious newspaper, they're under tremendous pressure to find the story that pleases their audience. Yes. As opposed to the story that is the best interpretation of the data. And exactly, exactly. It happens across the political spectrum. There is very selective use of information. Yes. And, and, and also sometimes, you know, a shallow understanding of the information. It goes back to the famous um, essay on criticism from Alexander Pope, where, he, you know, he said, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. It's shallow mm -hmm. drafts intoxicate the brain, but drinking largely sobers us again. And uh, this is what we spine and again with our, you know, small amounts of information. People appear to be experts because yes. they give just enough information for them to sound impressive, but they are actually very shallow in their understanding. And that's much more dangerous than the people who say, oh, you know what, guys, I just don't know. <laughs> you yes. know? So this is happening with a lot of this kind of communication in the public sphere. Well, it's pretty common. I remember once doing a study for a bank a state-owned bank. Mm -hmm. And you, as you probably know, state-owned banks, their purpose, their mission, their strategy is set by an act of Congress. And that act is usually like a 250-page document. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned and one of the things I advise clients is that you must read the original work if you want to understand something. And I remember when we were reading the original work, there was this little line in there which says that 
the this bank's rate of return must not exceed inflation. I'm thinking to myself, but that means the bank will never be profitable. Yeah. Right? That means the bank is never going to be profitable. And then what happened is the media wants to know why the bank is not profitable, but the bank was created in the first place not to be profitable because it's serving a segment of the market that cannot be served by any profitable players. So yes. you've got a CEO who's appointed to run the bank not to be profitable, but every few months he's got to go and explain why the bank is not profitable in the first place because people don't understand the founding purpose of the bank. And it exactly. almost sounds comic when I tell people the story, <laughs> but it's the example you gave. If you don't really understand what is happening and you just have these sound bites, you can make some very dangerous decisions, especially if you're in a position of influence. Exactly. Yep. And and the, the pressure is such that you, you end up having to pretend you know, because uh, you are on, on a, such a short time scale with decisions many times that you just don't have the, the wherewithal to uh, have that kind of information digested. And uh, so that's why, again, you know, you need to have much greater science-based interface with the decision-making process. So you have people who can interpret the science in a much more coherent way for those decision-makers also. Uh, and that's been like, even in the, in the context of governments, you know, there's been the role of a science advisor to the yes. president or the prime minister. And increasingly now there is a realization that, you know, those people actually need to have uh, a greater level of authority in terms of how those decisions get communicated because usually they're just brought up when someone is like oh we need you know just some peripherally yeah. more information whereas many times you may think you know it but you don't and so now you know that's been one of the things in the us there's been a push to have the science advisor be part of the cabinet for example uh, a lot other countries are also uh, beginning to do much more of that um, in China, certainly, there is a much more what we call a technocratic model of decision making. So they try to bring in more experts in terms of how decisions are made around certain processes. Uh, and uh, we, we will need to move more and more towards that kind of an approach. You know, the example you probably know about, which I'll recite for the audience here a little bit, is the example of Sri Lanka recently mm -hmm. banning fertilizers. Yes, yeah. There were enough people warning the government that this needs to be phased in because a blanket ban is going to lead to a significant decline in yield. And what has happened in Sri Lanka is sad because the ripple effect means the country has defaulted on its debt, doesn't have enough foreign reserves to buy things. And this is an example whereby sometimes things seem popular, they, well, they are popular, but they shouldn't be done. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, this is the irony of it is that, you know, uh, if we have uh, democratic systems, which do not consider these kinds of merit based performances, then you end up with a situation where uh, you can make these errant decisions, and you can actually perpetuate that kind of negative populism. Uh, and so they're, they're, what we are seeing in a lot of the world is a this kind of anti science uh, movement. Yes because the people in authority and who have the megaphone, they are going on and on and on perpetuating this sense that science is somehow elite. And yes. science is not elite, science mm -hmm. is for every, it is the reality that we are living with. You know, so 
being a scientist, we have this term citizen scientist, which I use with my students is, you know, any of person, someone even without any formal education can be a citizen scientist because they are seeing and observing the world. We can collect data from people who may not have any formal education, but because they have the, the natural sensations of living in the world, they can provide us really valuable information. So I think that has to come through as well, that science is not some elite enterprise uh, and that it should be part of the fabric of governance in a way which shouldn't make people feel uncomfortable. Yes, which obviously the next question it raises is about if we want a population that asks intelligent questions and makes informed decisions based on the data and they interpret it reasonably well, we need to invest in a population initially so that they can read and write, they study the right things in high school and so on. I don't think we do enough of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, certainly we want there to be much more uh, of uh, what what I call environmental literacy or science literacy, uh, certainly. Uh, And right now what we have is we have a lot of environmental awareness but we do not necessarily have environmental literacy, uh, which would mean that much more depth of knowledge and understanding. Um, and, and, and then also recognizing the kind of citizen science, which I was uh, mentioning earlier, where the curiosity of people out in the public, even if they're not engaged in a formal education, you can have community uh, workers who work with those people. You know, there are going to be, you know, street kids in India might not have the wherewithal to have a formal education to the depth that we want, but you can have community enterprises which can still get some really important information and literacy to them in the field. And we have this concept of what we call a science core, for example. Uh, There's an organization in in California which uh, basically gets people to go out in the community and create that awareness, even for people who may not have the time or the ability to have a formal education. So we need to think creatively about that kind of learning enterprise also, not just in a formal school setting, but something that's much more field oriented. Yes, I've traveled to, the last time I counted, 54 countries around the world. And one of the things I would always do when I go to a new country, it's obviously more than one city, is I would go to the most high-end mall in that city to see if it has a bookstore in the mall. Mm. It's a very interesting test because I've been to some major cities in the world where you go to the most high-end mall, I mean, you know, where you have a Louis Vuitton store and so on, but there's no bookstore. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what does it mean for this society that in the most prestigious mall in this city, there is no bookstore. Exactly. It, it, it actually shocked me. Some, some of the cities mm. which have world famous cities and well known around the world, you go there and there's no bookstore in the most famous mall. And I will give the credit to Asian cities. If you go to the top malls, you find usually more than one bookstore. In fact, I was in one Asian city, highest end mall, and there was a math tutoring center in that mall. Wow. And I thought to myself, you know, this says a lot about the society just by how they decide what's important enough to put in this mall, which, you know, if you consider the amount of uh, rentals, uh, a cost per square feet, it's going to be pretty high in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of, you know, cultural pressure for learning uh, is something that we are really missing out on in this 
kind of um, highly electronic media environment where most people are getting their news from uh, just browsing through a few links that they may get on their Twitter feed and so on. Yeah. There's a place for that. I mean, that can be the gateway. Absolutely. But that should re be, remain a gateway and not become an end, an end of itself. And yes. you use that then for greater depth of um, learning. And now, I mean, certainly podcasts such as yours are providing an opportunity for people who are too busy to necessarily read everything, but at least they're able to digest depth of information in that environment. Audio books have done the same yes. and we're seeing that, but as long as people are willing to engage with that uh, a different format, but still having the depth of understanding. Yeah, the thing about, you know, we spoke about this and it's come full circle to culture plays a big role here. You know, in my house, I don't keep fancy ornaments or, or paintings. What I like to do is I treat books as if they are the centerpiece and I put them up for display. I also mm -hmm. have a rule that you can never put a book on the floor. It's not respectful to education, yeah. but it comes down to the culture because we spoke about control, then it came down to the culture and then it came back to having an educated population. Exactly. That is not relying on a group of elite. The problem is if you're relying on a group of people to make decisions for you, they become the elite. Yeah. That's right. Education itself should not be considered an elite enterprise, which is unfortunately what it is now branded as by many politicians. You know, the, the data is very clear. Educated societies have much better quality of life indicators. I mean, one example, even with population, when you know, people talk about, well, population is one of the biggest challenges still in many parts of the developing world, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa and countries like Nigeria and you know, also in countries like Pakistan and uh, in Asia, where I'm from, where there's still a uh, very high population growth rate. Well, what is the single best antidote to population stabilization? It's female literacy, yeah. education for women. And that can have such a huge spillover impact in terms of how we are able to have more sustainable societies uh, in the long run. So. Uh, education has been demonstrated to have that kind of impact in multiple ways because it creates not just an informed citizen, but it creates productivity in ways which you can then uh, have all these other benefits from as well. And education, just for the readership, obviously our readers are well-educated but education doesn't mean having degrees in physics and chemistry and economics like you and me. It just means learning new things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the ability for critical thinking. I mean, part of that education uh, needs to be the ability to question and to try and understand uh, those kinds of aspects of, uh, of the world which are outside your comfort zone. And in my book, actually, in Earthly Order, I've dedicated it to my students. And I yeah, say, I you know, that it's my students who have really pushed me to go beyond my comfort zone because they keep asking those questions. And that's the fundamental aspect of an education is that it keeps opening new doors for you and you start to keep on expanding that yearning for, uh, for understanding different aspects of the world. And you become a lifelong learner. You know, I still yeah. call myself a student, you know, because I am every day, there is something new I'm going to end up learning. And that, that in itself is a critical aspect of a good education is that you are 
you, you see the humility of how little you know and how much more there is to know. I remember in chapter eight of your book, Empires and Edens, you had this great quote, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it is the only one you have. Yes, yep, exactly. Yeah, that's the epigraph at the start of the chapter. And uh, essentially, you know, uh, what ends up happening then is that you go into a, a basically a, an, a dogmatic perspective of the mm -hmm. world because that's the only idea you want to work with and uh, and that's what hopefully education would prevent you from uh, from doing it's interesting we started off with all these major problems around the world and it comes back to something as simple as getting people to be literate read and critical thinking, right, which is basically how universities are meant to operate in the first place and schools as well. It's not about teaching people facts, it's about teaching them how to think. Yes, exactly. It's that process and the quest that's so important and asking the right kind of questions, whereby you can then uh, elicit answers that will make uh, your life more meaningful as well as functional. Uh, you know, hopefully those answers will help you solve problems, especially in the case of engineering. Salim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think our audience is going to enjoy it as well. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Well, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I would say that uh, in terms of the way in which uh, I see this book, you know, I really wanted to start a, a movement around what I'm calling environmental literacy. And I'm donating all of the royalties for this book for environmental literacy programs through organizations like UNESCO. So this is really a labor of love. Uh, I feel that, you know, I've been in a very privileged position as a tenured professor. I mean, I, I, whatever I can do now to contribute to this through my writings uh, and uh, helping community members, uh, that's um, going to be, for me, a legacy that's far more important than having a bigger bank account. <laughs> I think that makes sense because at the end of the day, a legacy and change is more important than anything else. Absolutely. So I enjoyed speaking to you and I hope to have you back on the show again soon. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Michael. Take care. Ciao. All right. All the best. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.